Good morning, church. Um, if you have a Bible, you could open it to the book of Galatians. And no, that doesn't mean I'm going to yell at you this morning. Uh, a lot of people who are familiar with the Bible, Galatians is kind of the letter where I think Paul sort of went off on the church. Um, that's not happening this morning, don't worry. But um, by way of, uh, of introduction... You know, they taught us, you know, where you learn how to kind of do this. Uh, you know, you want to hook them. You know, you really want to get them with that introduction. You know, so here we go. You ready? Uh, this morning, as we spend a little bit of time in Galatians and we continue our series in God is Great, um, we are going to address the following things. Racial inequity and diversity in the church gender roles between men and women, the, idea, the subject overall of gender identity, as in does your biology dictate the gender you identify with, um, the political divides um, that we experience in, uh, in our country um, and in society. Um, we are going to talk about divorce and remarriage. We're going to talk about uh, wealth gaps. We're going to talk about um, attractive, more and less attractive people, uh, the differences there and some of the issues. Uh, and I'm trying to think if there's anything else that I have not hit. Make sure everybody gets upset. Um, I think probably um, um, we are going to talk about, oh yeah, um, I mentioned to somebody in the first service, they're like, did you talk about like music and like styles? Like, no, yeah, we're gonna talk about, uh, we'll talk about worship style and uh, preferences there. So there you go. So we're going to talk about that this morning as we walk through some passages in Galatians. Are you hooked? Hopefully you are. Um, so um, we are in a series where we're talking about the greatness, the magnificence of God, and we're, we're suggesting that if we truly believe that God is as great as he says he is in the Bible, that would, that would dramatically alter the way that many of us live our lives the sort of thesis this morning, I want to put it out there right, right out in the front, right out at the beginning, is this. If God is as great as he says he is, I don't need anything but the gospel to be exactly who he intends me to be. I'll say that one more time. If God is as great as he says he is, I don't need anything but the gospel to be exactly who God intends for me to be. That's the thesis this morning, and as we talk about that, we're going to talk about a few other things. Um, Galatians is a letter that Paul has written to the church in Galatia. The epistles are letters that are written of individual churches. They were not necessarily, I don't think that the authors, as they wrote them, inspired by the Holy Spirit, were thinking, I'm going to write this letter, and it is going to be read by churches all over the world thousands of years from now. Uh, and so we have to understand the context by which it was written, and what actually was going on with the group of people that he was writing it to and exactly who it was coming from, if we're going to understand exactly what he's talking about. But I want to start from the beginning, at the beginning of Galatians. We're going to look right at the first five verses, and then we're going to jump ahead to chapter three in Galatians and be there the rest of our time, and I'll put it up on the screen. This is the beginning of Galatians chapter one. Paul, an apostle, he's saying who's writing it. Not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. And all the brothers who are with me, to the churches in Galatia, 
Grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. You can stop there. Now, if there's anybody but Paul, amen would mean I'm done, but Paul means I'm just getting started. Um, you ever get like emails from people who have like crazy elaborate email signature combinations and it's just like, you know, they went the verse, a quote from a movie, a funny picture of a cat, a, the little guy from PowerPoint with like the light bulb thing. They still have that from the beginning. Like they just tack it all on there and you're like, man, this person really has a lot of ways to say goodbye. Uh, you know, Paul's a little bit like that, uh, both in how he ends and how he begins things, but he's not doing it just because Paul's like, yeah, this would be a couple of interesting things to throw in there instead of just saying saying, hey guys, it's me, Paul. I'm writing to Galatia. Let's get started. There's a reason that Paul opens the letter this way, and it is because he wants to be very, very clear to them exactly on what grounds and on what basis they should be listening to him. Because even though Paul is a big part of the church and he's a big deal at the time, he recognizes that there's some tension, some controversy going on within the church. And he wants to make sure that they all understand exactly why they should be paying attention to him. And so he introduces himself this way, in a very long-winded way. And if you look at everything that Paul has just said that we just read, you could sum it all up by saying this, I, Paul a minister of the gospel. Now, when he says a minister of the gospel, when he is showing us he's a minister of the gospel, he is spelling out what that means. That's what's evident here. It's why it's so important. It's why we're starting at the very beginning here, because Paul is starting with the good news of the fact that we're dead in our sins, but in Jesus, who sacrificed himself for us, we can have new life. The gospel is the greatest news that we can ever hear. It is the most important news that we will ever hear. It is an information and news about what is something that has already been done that we then respond to, first and foremost, by receiving. The gospel tells us some incredibly important things. It tells us, number one, probably the most important thing that you could ever hear and learn about yourself, which is this, you are a created child of God. God created you, you're his child. So like literally more than anything else that you'll ever learn or hear in your life, that right there is the most important piece of information that I can give you about yourself. You were created by God. You're his child. Everything that goes along with that idea, think it in your mind, that's it. You are loved by God. But the thing about the gospel that it tells us is that we're living, and we see it here. Paul talks about it in verse 4. We are, he says that, he says, he gave himself for our sins, Jesus gave himself for our sins, to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. You unpack that a little bit. When he says the present evil age, he is not saying, guys, right now things are pretty bad. They haven't been very bad up till now. And they're going to get a lot better, but unfortunately, we're in what I would consider to be a pretty rough time just in a short-term sense. No. When he says this present evil age, when you translate this present evil age concept and look at where else it's used in the New Testament, what he's describing is the world that we live in that is under attack 
from this spiritual enemy, the devil. So Satan is attacking us. There are these forces of spiritual darkness, and as a result, we live in this present uh, evil age. We still live in the same present evil age that he's writing to the church in at that time. Things are not uh, in a different place than they were when he was writing to them then. And unfortunately, because they live in a present evil age, which is characterized by a supernatural enemy who is out to get you, and you are living in the flesh, which means you're susceptible to temptation and sin. So if that's the reality, that's the world you're living in, then unfortunately, that doesn't stay outside of the church. Even uh, the influences of the present evil age in which we live, the temptation to sin that we deal with, it exists even inside the walls of the church. We're not protected and immune to those things still, even though you're a part of the church and you're within. So the result of, uh, of, of this present evil age is that we are sinful people. We're living in this sinful state. We're broken, is what the gospel tells us. And that brokenness is pretty extreme. It, it reaches a lot further than a lot of people would ever really be comfortable with thinking about for themselves. And what it brings as a result of the brokenness is it brings condemnation. It brings ultimately guilt, like we're guilty, we're condemned because of the way that we live in this sin that we have. And so the good news from Paul is that our Lord Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins... And why did he do it? For the glory of God. God loves us, we're his creation. Jesus gives himself for our sins, the good news of the glory of God. So, uh, the result of it is, uh, as we read in Romans 8.1, There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. So the good news is that if you are in Christ Jesus, you are no longer living under condemnation. Uh, and, and there's a freedom that we find in Christ that we couldn't find anywhere else. Why this is really important to the people in the church in Galatia is specifically how it relates to something called the law. Now the thing about the gospel is it's very easy to believe that we need it at one point in our lives and then we don't necessarily have to go back to it. Maybe you're a person who hears about Jesus. You say, yep, I want to become a Christian. That sounds great. Now I'm going to heaven. Now I'm just going to do a good job of living well. That's probably what God wants out of me. That gospel is information for other people. They need to hear it next, not me. But that's not the way that uh, people like Paul describe the gospel, present the gospel. There's a reason he keeps bringing it up again and again and again and again to people who clearly have acknowledged that they're believers in Jesus. It's because he believes that the gospel is something that we continually go back to. And the truth is that the gospel is probably something that you're going to have to be brought back to again and again and again. No matter how old you are, no matter how involved in the church you are, no matter how much you might be growing in your faith and you feel like you're getting holier as a person, you're going to continue to have to go back to these two words. We'll sum it up as simply as we can. Jesus saves. So when you find yourself dealing with the wreckage of sin, guess what? Jesus saves. When you find yourself doing a really good job, battling sin, doing well, getting better, guess what? Jesus saves, not you. 
Now, we need to continue to go back to those two words again and again and again. It is sort of like a wheel that has all these spokes, and in the center of the spokes is the central piece here. And that hub in the middle of the wheel, that is... Uh, what keeps the integrity of that wheel what it is. You can break a spoke or two and it'll be okay. Something erodes and eats away at that central thing, the gospel, the thing in the center that everything else is connected to, and you begin to ser- experience some serious problems with the integrity of that wheel. This is why the Bible tells us that Christ is a firm foundation, that Christ is a cornerstone, because that is what the gospel is. That's what he is in our lives. I have learned that I have to have people in my life who will continually bring me back to the gospel when I'm tempted to go other directions. As much as I, uh, and I often have for years, identified and seen people who were doing a very good job of living life well, according to what seemed like the law, what God wants. I would look at people, I would say, that person is admirable in that way. I appreciate and respect and look up to the way this person does this thing. And so I'd want to put myself around these people so that I could learn to be like them. I could learn to behave and act like them. Only to come to realize after years and years of trying to do this, that ultimately Life in Christ and obedience to him isn't about trying to copy the behavior of other people or even trying to obey alone. What I realized was I didn't need people in my life who were going to say to me, remember to do these good things all the time just like me. I needed people in my life who were going to say, remember Jesus is the one who saves Remember, Jesus is the one in which you find life. And in the same way, uh, I don't need people, I don't need to go back again and again to people in my life who are going to say, God is so big, God is so great, God's so huge, he doesn't care about the stuff that you do, he doesn't care about the way you live, that's all too small and insignificant to him. Don't get caught up in that like some people do. God is just, he loves you no matter what, and you're totally fine, don't worry about it. Uh, no. God does care. He cares so much about us and about the things that we do and about our lives and things like that, that ultimately uh, he sent his son to save us. But that doesn't change the fact that Jesus is the one who saves. I find myself continually needing to identify when there are people in my life who are really good at helping me come back to, and this is the gospel, this is the gospel, this is the gospel, because I need it again and again and again. So, This is where the problem presents itself. You have a church full of people in Galatia. Christians identify themselves as Christians, followers of Jesus, who have heard the gospel. They've responded to it. They've gathered together in this new church. Um, There are some Gentiles, mostly Jews at this time. And so they've gathered together in this church. And therein begins to be a bit of a problem. These people have come into the church. They're called Judaizers. And Judaizers are people who grew up as Jewish people in the faith. They were very good at following the law. They were very good at what Jewish people are known for, which is being distinct, living differently. That's what God wants me to do, is to live differently than the world outside, the culture outside. They were very good at this. They became Christians. They recognized Jesus is the way to life. I get it now. But this group, the Judaizers, didn't leave it there. They added something else. Paul sort of is going off, it seems, on the Galatian church in chapter 3, we read about where it's kind of a a good explanation of what's going on here. He says this to them in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, you foolish Galatians, that's not good. If Paul's ever saying that to you, that's really not good. 
You foolish Galatians, oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and work in miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? What Paul is pointing out here as he's talking about is he's saying you guys are blowing it because you accepted the fact and believed in the fact and put faith in the fact that Jesus saves you and nothing else and then you began to drift. Why did you get the Spirit? Why, why, did, you, why did, did you begin to have life in the first place? It was because of your faith in Jesus. Why do you think that's changed? Why does he say that? Because as these people came into the church, the Judaizers, they began to say, there's got to be a way that we can know that we're obedient to God moving forward. There's got to be a way that we can still be a better group of people than everybody else. There's got to be a way, now that we're saved, sure, fine, that we can begin to take control of this situation and do things on our own terms. In comes the law, specifically circumcision. They said, listen, there's this thing that Jewish people did and identified them as Jewish people. And as Christians are now, people are being converted into the church. They're becoming Christians. These Judaizers would say to them, hey, listen, you need to get circumcised. If you get circumcised, it means that you're one of God's people, one of the Israelites. Let me share with you the rich tradition that this church was founded in. You will be better than the people who don't get circumcised. You'll be a Jewish Christian, not just like a Christian, especially not a Gentile Christian. There's no way to overstate the degree to which, in the mind of the typical Jewish person, the world was divided into two very different groups of people. You had the religiously right Jewish people, and then you had the Gentiles. You had everyone else. You had a completely divided culture in that way. Now, it would be a lot easier if we could ever imagine what it would be like to live in a world where you had two different groups of people who fundamentally wanted two completely different things for the world and were fundamentally divided by, on almost every front by one part of being part of one group or not another. We don't know what that's like in this world, right? I'm being sarcastic. We do. Because we live in that political climate. We live in that world right now. We live in a world in which there are different groups of people that are like, all the world needs is literally less of them, and it will get better, right? The line's drawn. It's pretty clear. Also, each group believes that they really have a better understanding of, of what God wants and who God is and, and what God expects for the world and people that follow him, right? In the very same way, this was the world that the church was being birthed in, was the early church was growing up in. And as these Judaizers came in, they fed on something in members of the early church that was there. If God is great, I don't need to be in control. If I doubt God's greatness and I feel the need to be in control again, the law is how a religious person's going to do it. The things that we talked about last week, I said they were sort of the tells, 
maybe the way that you know that you're struggling with uh, believing that God is great and in control. One, you might be angry a lot, right? Uh, because anger is, is this idea that things are not going the way that they should go, whether it's anger at people, anger at situations. I was in Fred Meyer a couple of weeks ago. It was kind of later at night. I was doing totally fine because I was by myself. If my kids are with me, it would have been a little bit different. But I'm in there by myself, and uh, there's a line, and the line for the self-checkout, man, it was long. It was down to the refrigerator doors, and so we're in this big, long line for self-checkout, and it's like, uh, I'm, I'm doing fine. I'm standing there. I got, like, I got like an earphone in my ear. I'm listening to something. I'm like, I could be here all day. It's fine. This lady with a bunch of kids uh, comes around and sees the line, and it's just like, ah. Oh. And then her kids go, one of her kids goes, Mom, why is the line so long? And then she just kind of loses it and goes like, well, I'll tell you why it's so long. Because, and then she lists off all of the reasons why, beginning with Fred Meyer's poor management, lack of customer service, changes in America, the political climate in which we live, everything. There was nothing off limits as she was explaining to her kids why we have to stand in this line. And I'm like, okay, maybe, you know, maybe she should just go to the store, you know, without kids like me. Probably she had no choice, which is fair. But it was as though to her, everything was as simple as just things ought to be a certain way. And if I encounter something in life that is not going the way I want it to, then the anger comes out and I got no problem saying, oh, I'll tell you why that's happening. Chances are a person like that doesn't find themselves in a lot of situations going, I'm not sure why. <laughs> or I don't know, because we live in a fallen world or something, right? People like this are often very, uh, very... Uh, they have an abundance of observations of things not being the way they should be, uh, few solutions, right? But, you know, going, well, the world probably needs a few more observations, right? You might be afraid. You might not be angry. It might be that you're afraid. You're literally anxious and feeling fearful about the world and about your life and about the circumstances and the things going on in your life. You desire control, and not having control makes you feel that way, uncertain about things. Uh, you might just be tired and worn out because you're trying to do everything, because you think that if you don't do a thing, that it's not going to happen, that God's not going to do something, right? You feel the weight of it, the responsibility of it on your shoulders, now, that is, these are the tells of a person struggling to trust that God has control, that God is in control. Now, that is not to say that there are not legitimate reasons to, uh, that's, a, that's not to say that we're not supposed to care about working hard, that we're not supposed to try to accomplish. That's not to say that there aren't reasons why we would feel these things that are legitimate at times. I mean, God's very clear in the Bible. He he wants to use us. He wants to use people, work through us. He doesn't have to. He chooses to. We have a part to play. But there's this thing that happens with us, even after the gospel becomes a part of our life, which is this. I want control back. And when that happens, the religious person will tend to look to something called the law in order to get it. The law is the way that the religious person responds to anger. Things aren't this way. They should be this way. The problem is people need to be doing these things more. That's it. That's not the actual problem in our world. Uh, I'm afraid. I'm anxious. I'm uncomfortable with things. That's because things aren't 
because we aren't. I'm not. Maybe I'm not doing enough. Maybe other people aren't doing enough. Maybe I don't have the right understanding of what God wants, and if I don't know where I stand with him, then I'm afraid of what that's going to mean for me. It's not what the Bible says. I'm exhausted. I'm worn out. I'm tired because I'm like the older son, the older brother and the prodigal son who says, I've been slaving away for you, trying to show you how obedient I am. And the father's like, I think you might be missing the bigger picture here. There is a tendency to drift. The people in the church in Galatia have started to do that. All it took was these Judaizers to come in and say, let's add a few things onto the gospel in order for you to be exactly who God intends for you to be. Now, the law is not a bad thing. But the law does produce something in us that can be bad. We read about it in the next few verses or, or f- further on in, Galatia, in Galatians. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. You see, there's something that the law has done. There's a purpose that the law has served. There's a reason that God offered it and gave it to us. But there is these things that happen with the law. One of them is that once you're introduced with the concept of uh, you should do this thing, there's this thing in us that will wake up some days and go, whatever the opposite is, of the thing I should do, I think that's what I want to do today. I don't even know why. It may not make sense. It may wreck my life for a couple days. But I can't help but feel like my fulfillment is actually not happening because of these laws, because of these rules. That there's something about introducing the law that seems to increase the trespass, increase are fighting against it, even if it doesn't make any sense. I asked my son if I could tell this story. He gave me permission. There you go. Disclaimers out of the way. A couple of weeks ago, I came downstairs with my daughter in the morning. We're rummaging around for food. We find these spots of black, sticky stuff on the kitchen island. And, you know, I like tell her to smell it because, you know, I don't know, she's closer to the ground. And so she smells it. And then she's like, it smells like chocolate. And I'm like, well, taste it, you know? So then she tastes it. She's like, that's chocolate. I was like, I don't think it's mom. I don't think it's mom. Tegan comes downstairs. He's got a white t-shirt on. It is not very clean. It's got chocolate all over it. He's got chocolate around his mouth. He's like, good morning. Hey, good morning, Tegan. How'd you sleep? I slept great. Did you wake up last night? Nope. Okay. Uh, You want to see something crazy? Yeah. Look at that. And then I get to watch the, you know, Academy Award level acting, you know, that follows, you know. Oh, hmm. Oh, oh, interesting. That's chocolate. Do you know how that got there, I asked? Davey and I are just kind of watching him. Do you know how that got there? No. And then I, I like grab his shirt and I pull it out and he can see it. And he's like, I said, I think there's some on your mouth too. Okay, Dad, I confess. I confess. I came down and I ate a chocolate, a Hershey's chocolate syrup sandwich. Okay? I 
He said, I broke my rules. I broke my rules. I have the rules for a reason and I broke them. This is what I get. I was like, what are you talking about? You broke your rules. He's like, there's three rules. They're very simple. Be quiet. Don't eat anything loud. It's an extension of rule number one. Uh, And uh, clean up or eat everything. Leave no evidence. Okay? I broke the rule. This is what I get. And I was, he's a lot like me. He's just going to way overshare. You just sit back and let him do it. And then you're like, okay, I have no question. I have no further questions, Your Honor, you know. And, and then he goes, Dad, it was terrible. It was like the worst thing ever. I just, I just wanted chocolate syrup. I grabbed two pieces of bread. I put on so much, Dad, and I ate it. And I don't think I ever want to eat chocolate syrup again. It was like pretty great. Um, I was like, okay. About every week for a month after that, he would very randomly, just driving in the car, be like, Dad, that sandwich was so bad. It was so bad. I could barely eat all of it, but I did. I had to because, you know, rule number three, you know. I could see the whole thing unfolding. I could see it all happening in my mind. I could see him coming downstairs at night being like, okay, okay, I've only got so long. What do I do? What do I do? What do I want to do? All I know is I want to do something. I want to eat something I can't eat. I want to eat something I can't eat. What can't I eat? Opens the fridge. What can't I eat? That. I can't eat that. How do I eat it? Not, not fast enough. Okay, sandwich. Here we go. Good. I did it. All right. I'm going to be happy now. That was a huge mistake. There's something about having the law that causes us to actually do things sometimes that don't even make sense. They cause damage in our lives. They hurt our relationships. They do these things. So even though the law was intended for something good and it did what it was intended to do, it also, the Bible says, increased the trespass. It also is something that we cannot say, now that we have Jesus, let's go and do this on our own. If God is as great as he says he is, then I can be exactly who God intends me to be with the gospel alone, not with the gospel and the law. But this drift is something that happens with people a lot. You understand about Jesus, you you believe that he's the one who saves you, and then you believe it's through obedience to things that you're actually saved. And then you find yourself one day a religious person who's angry, who's exhausted, who's fearful in their own life and when they look at the world around them. Why? Because Jesus saves isn't enough anymore. It's Jesus saves plus these things that I do to know on my terms that I'm doing well and I don't need him to save me anymore. Here is the good news that is even beyond the good news we've already talked about. When you go ahead to the next verse, Paul tells them why it isn't like this with the gospel, why the law is not what we want it to be. He says, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and females, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. You see, 
The truth was, Paul knew, because he was a Jewish person growing up, he knew exactly what was driving this in so many ways. He knew that there's something about uh, people that makes us want to divide ourselves into groups. You see, you can say, Jesus saves me, but the question still remains, who am I now? What is my identity in now? Now, the Bible tells us that our identity is in Christ. What does that statement mean? It means that you, first and foremost, are a person who is saved in Jesus. That is at the core of who you are. And that is your identity. And everything else, and here's the key, everything else is extra. Now, why is that important? What Paul's saying here is he's saying, guys, the church isn't actually the place that looks like the world outside where you have everybody divided up by all these different groups, right? I mean, there were men and women in the church, right? They didn't like all come in and say, okay, now you wear like purple because it's a mixture of blue and red or whatever, and now we'll all wear that. And we'll, I mean, churches do like purple, I guess, but that's not the reason, right? No, churches acknowledged we have men and we have women, we have slaves and we have masters. They're sitting right next to each other in worship, and it's super awkward sometimes. We have uh, Jews and we have Gentiles. How? How do we have these people? Why is Paul saying that you aren't those things? Why is he saying that? Because he's saying that when you become somebody whose life is now found in Christ, you are not first and foremost a man, a woman, a Jew, a non-Jew. You are not a slave or a master. You are not rich or poor. These are all things People find identity in outside of Christ. Now, that's not to say that they're not important things. That's not to say that the Bible doesn't say uh, we need families, we need men and women, and here's what their roles are and what they look like, that, uh, that people ought to be treated a certain way. But Paul is erasing all the distinctions between people. That is the only way to interpret what Paul is saying here. And he is saying instead that in Christ is how you are fulfilled first and foremost. If God is great, then the gospel alone is all I need to be exactly who God has intended me to be. Ellie gave me this quote from J.I. Packer that she read, um, they read in the women's Bible study, um, in the Bible study book. It says, do I know my own real identity? My own real destiny? I am a child of God. God is my father. Heaven is my home. Every day is one day nearer. My savior is my brother. Every Christian is my brother too. Say it over and over to yourself, first thing in the morning, last thing at night, as you wait for the bus, any time when your mind is free, and ask that you may be enabled to live as one who knows it is all utterly and completely true. J.I. Packer is saying, 
Say this to yourself again and again and again and again, and then say it to yourself some more, and then wake up tomorrow morning, look in the mirror, and let that be the first thing that you say. Who am I? Before I am anything else, I am a person who is in Christ. And in that, I am completely fulfilled. And because I'm completely fulfilled in that, these other things are extra. It is not about my identity, who I am as a person and my core is not about whether I'm a man or a woman. It's not about whether I'm alone or whether I'm in love. It's not about whether I'm a far part of a family that is intact and together or that is broken. It's not about whether I have a family or I don't have a family. I have kids or don't have kids. It's not a matter of whether I'm physically strong or totally weak and dependent on others. My identity is not about whether I am free or whether I am enslaved. My identity isn't about whether I'm rich enough or whether I'm poor. My identity isn't about whether I'm emotionally well-adjusted person or I'm a total mess. My identity isn't about whether or not people look at me and they say, I want to be like them, or they look at me because maybe I suffer from mental illness, and they say, that is not what I want to look like. And we even look at ourselves maybe and think that. That's not what our identity is in, is those things. Your identity is not in whether you are successful or whether you are unemployed. Your identity is not in whether you are gay or whether you are straight. Your identity is not in whether you are, we'll say, good-looking or homely. Your identity is not in whether you are a Democrat or a Republican. Your identity is not in whether you are an American or you are something else. If God is great and He is in control, if the gospel is literally the only thing that we can stand on to be justified before the God of the universe then these things are not the core of who we are. You go, okay, fine, yeah, that's, that sounds right, that sounds good. So stop talking about them. The problem is, I don't think the church reflects that. Because if that were true in how we lived and how we functioned as a church, then when we walk inside of a church, we would have a sense that our, the identity of the people here gathered together worshiping is in Christ, not in the things I just mentioned. In a world that divides itself by nations, with borders, out of necessity, it would make sense that in a church where I am firm in Christ, being an American matters less inside the walls of the church than it does outside the walls of the church. Because that is not the core of my identity any longer. In a world where the affluent have almost no contact with the poor, it would make sense that in the church, you would see a person who is low economically worshiping alongside a person who is well off economically because their identities are not found in those two different things. Their identities are found in Christ 
But that's a thing we rarely, if ever, see in the church. It makes sense. There's something about being human that makes us band together with people who are like us. And so it makes sense that diversity is something that wouldn't naturally happen on its own. It makes sense that we would see that in the world outside the walls of the church. Yet if the church firmly believed, if the people in the church believed, if we believed that our identity is first and foremost rooted in Christ and us all standing in him, then in, the things, then, then in our nationality and our ethnicity and these other things, then Sunday morning would not in fact be the most segregated day of the week, which it is. If our identity is in Christ and it isn't in being married or being single, then why is it so hard to be single in the church? Why is it hard to suffer infertility in the church? If our identity is supposed to be in Christ, not in whether or not we have children, why is it crazy to even just not have kids in the church? If our identity isn't in the kind of family that we have or the way it looks, our identity is in Christ. We wonder why... People are so wrapped up in what gender they are. Why that's such a huge part of their identity. Well, that's because we all collectively in the world seem to make that such a huge part of the core of who we are. If I can't be this, I can't be me. We would look at a person who is gay or a person who's straight and we would say, it needs to be okay for you to be this way and, and not, not live this lifestyle. You're still a child of God. You're still beloved by God. While at the same time elevating what it means to be in a relationship, being in, in love with another person, not being alone and say, uh, this is kind of how, you know, this is it. This is the end all be all of life for everyone else. What haven't I hit? Um, there's the church should be a place where it doesn't matter how you look. The church isn't a place where it doesn't matter how you look. I don't even know why this is the case. But if you go to a Christian music section of a store and you look at the albums, do you know that there are percentage-wise more pictures of the artists on their albums than on secular albums? Do you know that? You know the Christian artists have pictures of themselves on their albums more often than secular artists. And they're not bad pictures either. We want to see good-looking Christians more than we want to see homely-looking Christians. It shouldn't really be that way, but it seems to be. In fact, it seems as though the same kind of political divide that we experience outside the church, we experience inside the church, even though Christ is supposed to be the center of who we are. If God is great and he is in control, then I can be completely who he intends me to be with the gospel alone. I don't have to be anything else. I don't know that that's the culture that we have developed in the church. I don't know that if Paul walked in and saw the divisions amongst us, amongst the church in America today, that he would not find himself saying something similar to what he is to the Galatian church, which is, there are neither any of these different things amongst you. First and foremost, you are all in Christ together. That is who you are. 
oh, I told somebody I was going to talk about, about music style. How crazy would it even be? Can you even imagine what it would be like, a church where people didn't care about music style? People care outside the church about their preferences, about their tastes. People care about things being the way that they're comfortable with. What if the church was a place that wasn't like that? The tricky thing about church is in our modern day, especially in America, the church is like the most optional group of people that we get to be a part of. You can't, you can't choose your family at all, so, you know, good luck with that, right? You can kind of choose where you work. You can sort of choose school, depends. You can definitely choose church. You can choose the people you sit next to. You can choose the sermons you want to listen to. You can choose the music that you like. You can choose a church where family looks this way and not this way. A church where people seem to lean more this way and not this way. Why bring up all of those things? Because there is such good news in Paul's freedom, the freedom of what Paul is saying, which is that when you are in Christ, you are neither, you are sons of God. That is first and foremost who you are. And everything else after that is like extra. It really is, even if we don't treat it that way. As many of you as were baptized in Christ Jesus, so let's do some math here. If a hundred of you were baptized in Christ Jesus, then a hundred people have put on Christ. If you were baptized, you've put on Christ. And if you've put on Christ, guess what? Married, single, man, woman, gay, straight, black, white, rich, poor, slave, master, Democrat, Republican, if you have put on Christ, that is who you are above all else. Neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, no male or female, you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to a promise. People love to talk about Abraham. Oh, man, he was like the best of them. There was no law then. Shoot. It was his faith. People love to talk about people like Moses or people like Noah. Noah, God chose him. He was righteous. Translated, it means, it says that God declared him righteous. He, wouldn't, he didn't earn that. God said, I need you to do this thing for me, and I'm declaring you righteous. Not because of your perfect obedience, but because I'm declaring you that way. There is this um, story, I guess, that then has become a movie, that's become another movie and another movie and another movie, and now it's kind of a cultural thing, The Invisible Man. And if you've ever seen any... You've never, even if you've never seen the movie The Invisible Man, you have the mental image. When I say, what does the invisible man look like? Okay, I know, I get it. If I say, what does the invisible man look like? You're not going nothing. You're thinking about a guy who's got like a suit on and he's wrapped up in these bandages because that's like what the invisible man did. He wrapped himself up in all these bandages and all this other stuff. The only way that the invisible man could be seen was to put all these things on. And then we all have seen some iteration of that scene or that clip or whatever where he starts to take the stuff off and there's nothing underneath. Get that image in your mind and know that 
we live in a world filled with invisible men, with people who have put things on outwardly, people who have wrapped themselves up in things outwardly. But on the inside, there is nothing. We are to be people who, because there is something on the inside, don't need that stuff as much. We literally don't need it as much. That doesn't mean we're going around walking around naked, but, you know, you can wear a bathing suit when everyone else wears a robe, whatever. Okay, there you go. There's your thing to remember. If you are in Christ, there is something in there. There is something substantial. There is something meaningful. You are now enough. And if God is great, as great as he says he is, and if he's as in control as he says he is, then that is everything you need to be exactly who God intends for you to be. He's not secretly hoping that you'll prove him wrong by doing it on your own. He's not getting ready to put you in a category of better people who were able to somehow combine Jesus and the law. He doesn't make those distinctions in the way that you do. He either looks at you and sees Christ or he looks at you and sees a person who's condemned. As we pray and as we worship and as we reflect on that, the question is, is that the core of who I am in my own mind? If I write out the sentence, you know, my name, and then is, you know, Ed is, all the things that I would write down, all the roles, the hats, the things that I wear, the things I do in my life, those things are not actually who I am. Who I am is a child of God, and that is enough. Let's pray. God, I think one of the reasons why we find ourselves so disoriented and confused in navigating lives as Christians is because we worry that you are expecting us to prove something to you still. And God, we know that's not true. Lord, um, I know that there is someone here today, there is someone watching online today, I know that there is at least someone who has not actually chosen to follow you, who has maybe been around church and been around the Bible and heard the gospel, but has not actually responded by stepping out and saying, I recognize that life is only found in Jesus. And I pray that if that person is here today physically, if this person is here tuning in online right now, if that person is even listening to a podcast, Lord, I pray that you would lead them to know that the only thing that they can do right now, the only choice and decision to make right now is to pray and say these very words, Father, I recognize that you created me, that I'm your child, and that because of the brokenness within me and in this world that I am condemned, Lord. That nothing I do is going to be able to get me back to you, God. And so I recognize that because of Jesus, because of the perfect life he lived, because of the sacrifice that he made, 
I accept his grace. I receive his grace. I receive him to stand in my place before you. God, I repent. I repent of my ways. I repent of the bad things I've done and I repent of the good things that I've done in an attempt to justify myself. God, would you forgive me? God, would my identity be rooted in you before anything else? It's in your name we pray.